0: Good to see all of you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out and uh, turn to the Gospel of Mark. That's where we're going to be this morning, Mark chapter 5, right at the very beginning, verse 1. We're in the middle of our series, The Life and Way of Jesus. It has been our deep dive into the Gospel of Mark as we seek to, as a church, look more closely at the person of Jesus, who he is, what he did, in order so that we would become more faithful followers of him. Last week, we looked at the story of Jesus in the boat, and they encountered that crazy storm on the Sea of Galilee. We saw in that story a bunch of, of details that Mark gave us. We saw that Mark, or that Jesus was asleep, and not just asleep, but he was asleep in the stern, and not just asleep in the stern, but he was also on a cushion, and the disciples were freaking out, and they wake Jesus up, and Jesus wakes up, and instantaneously, what does he do? He, he stands up, and he tells the storm to be And the punchline of that story in the Gospel of Mark that we looked at last week, it wasn't that Jesus can calm the storms of your life. Now, now, he certainly can, and that was a good secondary application, but by calming that storm, what Jesus was showing his disciples and what Mark was showing his readers, what he was showing us, is that Jesus is more than just some great rabbi. Jesus is more than just some great teacher. He's more than some great moral, ethical example. Jesus is Lord. He is God. That is what Mark was showing us here, and he's showing us that this Jesus here has ultimate authority. We all good? I've never had this happen before. The, light really- the light's freaking out on all of us? Okay, cool. I'm glad we took care of the distraction. Awesome. We good. Thanks, Don. appreciate that. Yes, let's give it up for Don, everyone. Yeah. Where were we? Okay. That flashing light will make more sense in just a second, trust me. Um, so, so Jesus shows that he has ultimate authority over the seas, which if you remember last week, according to the ancients, were this untamable, undomesticated force in the minds of the ancients, and he has ultimate authority not just over that, but he has ultimate authority over our lives, and so that begins, that's the first story of a series of stories that we're walking through right now that display Jesus' ultimate authority as king of this sort of inaugurating kingdom of God that he is drawing in. Now, this story today, I don't know how else to put this, but this story today is weird. It's, it's strange strange. Um, It's kind of spooky, you know, and it's kind of fitting for Halloween and everything with with this week and the festivities and whatnot, Uh, because today's story has terror, it has a graveyard, it has bloodshed, it has demons, this story has death. Welcome to church, everyone, right? (laughs) Now, you might not be a fan of Halloween, and that's fine. But what I'm about to share with you is in the Bible and in this story here today, the the weird, strange, even spooky elements of this story speak so directly to our current situation today. So just a fair warning, get ready, okay? Um, normally I would read through the entire story here at the very beginning, but this story is kind of a longer one, and I thought it would be better for us to go verse by verse, line by line, work our way through the story. So again, if you have a copy of God's Word, open that up to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be there in just a minute, but before we jump into the text, I want to give you a little background on the story, what's going on here, uh, to make sense of the story. Remember, last week Jesus and his disciples, they got in that boat to, quote, go to the other side. Now, now, where exactly were they going, going to the other side? Well, they were going to this specific region there called Decapolis. And Decapolis was on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. You can see it here on this map. Decapolis, the, the, the Sea of Galilee is that little blue thing in the top middle. Decapolis is on the southeast side there. And they were making their way over to what would now be considered modern-day Jordan. And Decapolis, during this time, was a thoroughly Gentile area. At the end of last week's message, if you were here with us or if you listened on the podcast, um, I mentioned that Jesus was like Jonah in so many ways in that story in the boat, but he was different than Jonah in one major way in that unlike Jonah, he didn't stand up and tell the disciples in a moment of despair, throw me into the sea and it will calm. He stood up and by his own authority, he calmed the sea. But he's also unlike Jonah in another really key area, because if you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah went to Nineveh kicking and screaming. In fact, at the very beginning of that story, he went the exact opposite direction. What we see here is Jesus moving toward this very Gentile region, what the Jews would have considered enemy territory. Very unlike Jonah, it's why Jesus said in Matthew 12, that I am the true and better Jonah. Now, a quick history of Decapolis. Decapolis is simply a Greek, word, meaning 10 cities, deca for 10, polis for cities, and it was colonized and established by this Greco-Macedonian ruler that I'm sure you've all heard of, Alexander the Great, right? Fourth century ruler, conquered so much of the known world. He established this area, and then about a 100 or so years before uh, Jesus' time, the Roman Empire came through, and, and, and they took over this area. And so in this area in particular, both the Jews who did reside here, but the majority Gentile population they despised the Roman Empire collectively, but especially the Jews. The Jews hated the Roman Empire because to them the Roman Empire was more than just like this evil empire. You can cue like the Star Wars Galactic Empire song right here anytime they would see the soldiers marching or see the Roman Empire. They were the embodiment of evil itself to the Jewish people. And they thought that behind this empire, behind Nero, that, that, that's the ruler of the time that Mark is writing this gospel, think like evil Hitler-like type ruler, behind the propaganda, behind legion after legion of Roman army, the Jewish people believed that the Roman Empire was empowered and, and motivated by this dark, sinister force. Like how many of you are familiar with the book of Daniel? Heard the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. The book of Daniel was was tremendously popular during the time of Christ and at the time of of Mark's writing here. The book of Daniel is is this prophetic, kind of crazy, twisted, hyper-political book uh, that tells in this story of four empires rising out of the sea, remember that untamable, undomesticated force, and the Roman Empire was the fourth empire in the book of Daniel, the culmination of these evil empires that would come as an oppressive force against the people of God, and there was nothing that the Jewish people wanted more than to see this great, evil, oppressive force thrown back into the sea, okay? That's the background, are you still with me now? That's the background. Let's jump into the text with all that fresh in our minds. Mark 5, verse 1, it says this. So they came to the other side of the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And so again, remember, Jesus and his disciples, they're crossing over from thoroughly Jewish territory to Gentile territory. And he's bringing with him the the kingdom of God. And so what we see here is that there is no region, no area, no territory, no life that is, quote unquote, safe from from the life-giving rule of this King Jesus and the kingdom of God. However, there is what we see an anti-kingdom, what the New Testament would later call a kingdom of darkness, and it is not thrilled about Jesus and his rule and his reign outside of the borders of Israel. I mean, we saw this last week. The second Jesus steps outside of the territory and into the boat, he encounters that storm. Don't think that that was just mere happenstance, and we see Jesus encounter more opposition here in this story. Look at verse 2. Just as Jesus was getting out of the boat, this man with an unclean spirit came from the tombs and met him. And so this isn't the first time that we've encountered an individual with an unclean, or your translation might say, impure spirit. A few weeks ago, at the very beginning of Mark, in chapter 1, we saw Jesus encounter a man with an unclean spirit. And so listen, I get that some of you, when you encounter a story like this in the scriptures, in the Bible, your mind starts to get a little skeptical. You think to yourself like, well, I get that it's talking about demons and spirits, but that was then and this is now. And listen, I I, I get that skepticism. I think it's good and healthy to be a little bit skeptical. I myself am. But listen, we have to understand and acknowledge that the reason we approach a, a story like this with so much skepticism is because we have been, we have been raised and, 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 and we have grown up in an environment thoroughly based in science, or maybe better put, scientism, where, where, all, that we can, uh, where all, all that we think is real is what we can touch and taste and see and smell, but what we have to see is that according to the New Testament mind here, the universe is full of life beyond our immediate senses. But according to this biblical worldview, in between like ruler God, creator of the universe, and the billions of people in the earth, there is a world, an invisible world, full of real spiritual beings. What the Bible calls angels, demons, spirits, powers, principalities, rulers, lords. In the Hebrew scriptures, more often than not, they use this word Elohim, which means gods, but like lowercase g. And and some of these beings are in partnership with Yahweh, seeking to advance his rule and reign in this world, but there's a whole other contingency that's opposed to it. And the Bible explains this reality and says this is a thing that is actually real. Let's keep going in verse three. We learn more about this man. It says that he lived among the tombs, or in the graveyard, and that no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. And for his hands and feet had often been bound with chains and shackles, but he had torn the chains apart. He, he broke the shackles in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Each day and every, uh, each night and every day among the tombs and in the mountains, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. Do You see what I'm talking about with like the Halloween vibes here? Like, just like put yourself in this sea. I mean, this is a terrifying scene. And you have to think that this moment right now, it's probably happening in the middle of the night. Remember last week's story, they're leaving during evening. It was just a few miles across the sea. And you have to also think that for these disciples in this boat, this is the first time for many of them that they're leaving their home, their home territory. They would have never thought to step foot in a world like this. And here they encounter this this crazy man in the middle of the night. I mean they're they're in a graveyard of all places, and a graveyard according to the Jewish mind at the time was a place where the spirits dwelled. There's this man who has become like a beast like creature. It says that the text says that they tried to subdue him. It's this Greek word Damasi. Which, which was used not for men and women. You didn't try to subdue a man or a woman. You tried to subdue or tame a, a, a horse or, or a donkey. But here's this man in this position right now where he's wild, he's untamable, and, and somehow in this graveyard among these tombs, this man has been overcome with spirits. He's found himself in this spot where he is hurting himself, and he's overcome with this evil power. I, I, I just want us to notice a few signs of this man's demonization first of all we see isolation he's all alone in this graveyard he's an outcast from society we see bondage he's under the power and control the the influence of this power he has no free will he has no capacity to break free in his own power there's there's clearly some sort of obsession with death He's living among these tombs in this graveyard. He's living among the dead. There, there's, there's severe mental illness here. He's not right in his mind. He has superhuman strength. He's breaking the chains. This is a clear sign that I have no demon possession right now in my body. Thanks for like the sort of laugh there. That was That was okay. We later discovered that he's naked and he's self-harming here, he's cutting himself, there's self-destructive behavior. I mean, this is an awful situation that this man is in. It's horrible. But when this oppressed man is face-to-face with Jesus here, something happens. Look at verse six. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and then he cried out with a loud voice, leave me alone, Jesus, son of the most high God. I implore you by God, do not torment me, verse 8, for Jesus had said to him, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. And so his words there, leave me alone, your translation might say something like, what do you want with me? It was this phrase, this kind of idiomatic Hebrew phrase back then, which meant like, why are you bothering me? So think like a, a teenager talking to his or her like, younger sibling or his parent, like, what do you want? Get out of my room. Get, get out of here. Because to this demon right now, Jesus shouldn't be here. He's outside of his like, sort of jurisdiction. Like, what are you doing in my territory? This is my spot. And then he says this. This is really interesting. He says, Jesus, son of the most high God. So he bows down before him and he says this, Jesus, son of the most high God, but, 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 but is this like an act of worship? Is this demon worshiping him? It's actually not what's going on here. What's going on is, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, this is actually a tactic. It it was was seen as sort of this spiritual warfare tactic that if you could name your enemy, you would have power over your enemy and be able to subdue your enemy. And so that's what he does. He, He calls out Jesus' name, his title. He declares who he is. Jesus, you are the son of the most high God. But then he says this. He says, don't torment me. And so what we see here is great fear. We see great fear at the sight of Jesus. We don't see worship. And then we see this. Keep reading, verse 9. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, I'd imagine, my name is Legion. Something like that, you know, like really dark. I, I kind of have like a, like a musician-y kind of voice. I don't really have, like I need a guy with like a manly voice to do that part. But he said like, my name is Legion, and, and we are many Now get this, a legion back then, it was actually the largest Roman military unit containing upwards of 6,000 soldiers. And so they were known for their brutality, they were known for their destruction, and so this man is demon-possessed, not by just one unclean spirit, but by thousands. By thousands. Look at verse 10. He begged Jesus repeatedly, do not send me out of the region. And so we learn something interesting, like he's in this region and and this is kind of like his his neighborhood. Like I don't wanna move, I wanna stay here. And so in verse 11, there on the hillside, this is where the story gets out of control, okay? There on the hillside, a great herd of pigs was feeding and the demonic spirits begged him, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. So the unclean spirits came out and went into the pigs. Then the herd rushed down the steep slope into the lake. About 2,000 were drowned in the lake. That's a lot of pigs. (laughs) 2,000 pigs just like running down a steep slope into the lake. Like that would be the craziest thing you've ever seen in your entire life. Now, Now, the text doesn't exactly say who is responsible for the death of all these pigs? We have three options, okay? First of all, it could be Jesus, but the text doesn't explicitly say that Jesus sent them into the pigs. They asked, and he was just like, okay, do what you want. The second option is that the spirits themselves cast the pigs into the lake, but that wouldn't make sense because it seems like there's this sort of parasitic element with the demons where like, they wanted to go reside in those pigs lest they dissipate or whatever happens to them. And then the third option, which I think is the most likely, is that when when the demons entered into the pigs, the pigs just didn't have the capacity and their minds were blown by these demons. And in like this great, you know, like, you know, cascade, they went down this steep slope into the lake. And if that's the case, and I really do think it is, it would make for, for what the original hearers of this gospel would understand as like this tremendously ironic situation. That means like if you were in the first century church and someone was reading this part of Mark, we encounter all these pigs going into the sea and we're like, what in the world, that's crazy. It almost seems like, you know, inhumane to the animals to do that. But but they would've laughed. They would've probably laughed because they would've thought it to be ironic that the very thing that the demons were trying to avoid happened to them and not only that, the idea that the unclean spirits had been driven into the sea by these unclean animals. Because to the Jewish people, the the, the swine, pig were, were tremendously unclean. And and there they go into the sea. Remember that chaotic, untamable, undomesticated force. They were sent back to where they belong. Interesting. Interesting. King Jesus and his invading, inbreaking kingdom was ruling in that area now. Now the story still isn't over. Please stay with me. A few more verses. Like I said, it's a longer story. Verse 14. Now, the herdsmen ran off. Really bad day for these guys, right? Really bad day for them. And they spread the news in the town and in the countryside. I mean, can you just imagine, like, going to your boss and being like, well, here's what happened. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. This guy named Jesus. And the people then went out to see what happened naturally. I mean, of course he would. They came to Jesus and saw the the demon-possessed man sitting there. I love this part right here. Look, clothed and in his right mind, the one who had the legion. But look at the people's response. They were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man, they reported it, and they also told about the pigs. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their region. It's Crazy. The people as a whole in this moment, they reject Jesus. He's just too much. This Jesus is too disruptive for their lives. They say, please, Jesus, just go. And interestingly enough, in this moment, Jesus is like, okay. I'll go. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, so he's just getting into the boat, he's leaving. But look what happens. The man who had been demon possessed asked if he could go with him. But Jesus did not permit him to do so. What's really interesting is just a few chapters earlier, we see this phrase in Mark, with him. Jesus' call to all people to become a disciple. He says, anyone who wants to follow me, follow me. You can. Be with me. And so you would think in this moment, Jesus just healed this man, and this man's like, let me go with you. I know you got room in that boat. But Jesus is like, no. What does he do instead? Look at the rest of verse 19. Instead, he said to him, go to your home and to your people and tell them what the Lord has done for you, that he had mercy on you. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him, And they were all amazed. And so word begins to get out about what God did in this man's life and the people are amazed at the story. And that's how it ends. That's how it ends. And so let's look a little bit more closely at this story, the way Jesus interacts with this man who's overcome by these spirits. What exactly is Mark up to in this story? Well, when we think of the man, on the surface, he seems crazy. He seems out of his mind. Something is wrong with this man. This man is doing bad things. He's doing bad things to himself. But what Mark is trying to, to show us here is that in reality, behind the facade of who this man is, the real problem is not the man himself, but it's an unclean spirit dwelling within him. Yeah. Now listen, I, I think that it's safe to say that some, not all, not a majority, uh, not most, please, please hear what I'm saying here. I think it's safe to say that some of the evil that we encounter in this world is is in fact motivated by the demonic. I think that's that's a reality. Again, certainly not all, but a portion of the evil in the world that we live in right now seems to be beyond merely human. Beyond the physical or psychological or emotional, it seems to have a deeply spiritual component to it. Wouldn't you agree? Whether it's, you know, like a a gunman who goes into a public place and just indiscriminately kills and, and harms people. Uh, w- whether it's like a, a serial killer doing something like unspeakable to his or her victims, whether, whether it's innocent people, men, women, and children, like harmed and hurt in war or, or acts of terror, whatever it might be, we, we look at the world around us that we exist in and we think to ourselves, man, this can't just be the work of a, of a single human or a group of people, that there has to be something behind it. has to be something bigger, darker, more evil. And so what it appears that Mark is doing is in this story, he's saying the problem here isn't the man. If anything, he's the victim. The real problem is the legion behind him. And to the early church that Mark was writing to, the reason why he would put this story here is Mark was saying to the early church, the real problem that you're facing right now in your persecution is not this evil empire of Rome, it's the darker, more sinister forces behind it motivating it and propelling it forward. Because we have to remember, Mark is writing to followers of Jesus just a few decades after this story takes place. And he's writing to people who are facing enormous persecution. Enormous persecution from the very same Roman Empire that was ruling when Jesus encountered this man. But in fact, this empire had gotten darker and, 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 and more sinister in a way, persecuting the church. And so you can imagine the church listening to this story under this, this oppressive rule of Rome, and they had lost husbands, wives, children, friends, neighbors, businesses had been shut down. And there was nothing more that they wanted than to see Rome and all of its armies sent back into the sea where they came from. That's what they wanted. They, they were craving. Here's what they, here's what they were ultimately craving. They were craving freedom. They, they were craving liberation. They saw the evil around them and they were like, God, where are you? What are you doing? We need you to do something. Something they wanted to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. But this is where I think the the gospel narratives get really interesting. Because not once does Jesus ever incite violence. Not once does he lead a rebellion or revolution against Rome. In fact, what he did was he uncovered and he unearthed the real enemy. It wasn't the empire itself, but it was the darker, more powerful forces motivating it and animating it. Not once in his life does he take Rome head on. Even when he's being crucified, he looks beyond the empire. It seems like he looks beyond the soldiers, beyond the soldiers nailing his body to that cross. He sees the real evil lurking in the shadows, and that's what he deals with. The Apostle Paul wrote this, Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. In other words, hear this. Make sure you know who your real enemy is. Make sure you know who your real enemy is. Otherwise, here's the problem. We end up fighting people that we should be saving. And that's kind of become sort of a national pastime for our country, hasn't it? Just fighting, fighting over everything. We we end up opposing people that we should be assisting. We end up attacking people that that we should be uplifting. Make sure you don't get sucked into this modern worldview that all all you can verify is real is what you can see and touch and taste and hear and smell. There is an invisible but very real world all around us. Make sure you know who your enemy really is. I mean, not once in this story, as Jesus encounters this man, does he ever lay into this man and say, you idiot, how did you get yourself caught up in all of this garbage? You fool, didn't you know this was going to happen to you? No, he recognizes that behind the man is this darker, more sinister force, and he addresses that as the real enemy. Not the man. Not the man. Because in a way, when you think about it, this isolated man among the tombs, he's kind of like a picture of all of us. It's kind of like a picture of all of us. You might be thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never been in a situation like that. (laughs) (laughs) Hear this, hear this. Tim Keller writes this. This man's nakedness and chains and isolation and his raving and crying out are a picture of us all. We are sinners. And the Bible says that we are all spiritually enslaved to sin, to idols, and to the prince and power of the air we need to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're all in this condition. His case is just more poignant and obvious. And so, as much despair as we might see in this story with the condition this man is in, what we ultimately see is a story of great hope what we see here is that no person is so far gone uh, that they are beyond the reach of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. No person is so far gone that they are beyond the reach of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. No one is, not even this isolated man, out of his mind, hurting himself in a graveyard, possessed by thousands of demons, is out of the reach of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Not you, not me, none of us are. Because in the end, Jesus knew who his enemy really was. And in this story here, he shows that he has ultimate authority over this force by sending it back to where it came from. The chaotic, untamable, undomesticated force of that sea. And this man then, he was then sent out to be the first missionary to this Decapolis region. And he told people of the good news of Jesus Christ, of what Jesus did for him, how he changed him, how he saved him, how he redeemed him, how he healed him. And even though they rejected Jesus in this moment, what you'll see later on in this story is that when they go back into this region, revival is happening. It's amazing. And how was Jesus able to do all of this? Well, again. Tim Keller goes on and says this. The reason Jesus could forgive this man, heal this man, help this man, and the reason he can forgive and help and heal us comes at the end of Jesus' life. There we see Jesus stripped naked like the man. Jesus, a prisoner. Jesus isolated and crucified outside the gate. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus could come into this man's life here and heal him because Jesus died for him and paid the penalty and essentially bore all those things upon himself. He was stripped so that we could be clothed. He was thrown into the deepest despair and agony so that we could know God's love and forgiveness and have inner quietness. That's the power of Jesus right there. That's the power of Jesus. And church, when we have been freed by this Jesus, when we have been liberated by him and have experienced his love, we are then freed to see our enemies more clearly and we are free to love them like Jesus does. We are, we are free to engage with those that are different than us, those that, even those that oppose us, and we're able to love them well but we're only able to do that if we have first been loved and liberated by Jesus ourselves. Would you stand with me as I pray? Jesus, we thank you for your liberating power. We thank you that you free us, that you heal us. We, we thank you, Lord, that there is no person so far gone that they are out of the reach of your love, of your forgiveness, of your healing touch. We thank you for a crazy story like this one today, of this man who seemed so far gone, of this man who seemed too far gone, stuck in his hurt, uh, oppressed by these demons, and, 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 and you step in and you change everything. And Lord Jesus, I think of so many different stories here in this room today where that's, that's your story. You encountered Jesus in a dark, dark place, and you were healed, you were changed, you were forgiven so, God, right now, we thank you for that. But I also pray, Lord, for, for the many in this room, Lord, who are still longing for that freedom, longing for that liberation, God, longing for your healing touch. Would your spirit make it known to them that that is available to them today, that they can walk toward you, that they can move toward you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, And you have ultimate authority over over anything we face, over any habit, over any hang-up, over any hurt, Jesus. Lord, I pray that as a community, you would help us to celebrate the reality of this love so that we would be able to go forth and be agents of this love, of this resurrection power to all of those around us, that we would not see other people as enemies, Lord, that we would see them as full of dignity, because they are image bearers of you. And that regardless of how much that person might oppose us, regardless of how much that person might be on the other side of the fence, Lord, there is a real enemy, Lord, that we are battling against. We do not battle against flesh and blood. We battle against the spiritual forces in the heavens. We can't do it without you, Jesus, so would you go with us as we go forth from this place? Because you are not just some great rabbi, you are not just some great teacher, but you are God. And so we worship you right now. Amen.